Hey, good morning, church. Hey, good morning. <laughs> yeah, life, life is good. <laughs> life is good when you just spent seven days, six and a half days driving 5,000 miles with your family locked, locked in a box. Box on wheels, that's so awesome. Man, it's cool. Um, it's cool to see God do neat stuff and like stuff out of the ordinary and stuff that's like wicked awesome. And it's cool to see and hear whispers of Jesus working in the corners that feel normal and average and boring. <laughs> and his, his grace shows up in big ways and small ways, and it's no less his grace. So um, good morning, church. I'm glad to be with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Michael. And we are uh, taking another step in the series that we've called Silver Linings. And this series gears in and focuses in on some family relationships. And it's a unique, um, it's a unique story in the Bible. It's a unique section of history where what happens within a family unit ends up impacting a nation. And what happens within the nation ends up impacting the world. And so there's a sense in which we each have some kind of a connection. We each like, have a family and we each have family stress. Amen. <laughs> A to the men. And uh, as we kind of navigate some of those things, it, it, there's a sense in which we can kind of just think, oh, well, this is just my corner of the world. It won't really impact anybody else. But it actually does. And we're going to um, examine some of those truths by looking at a place where it's very clear that what happens within the family affects, a bit, has bigger ripples throughout history and time. So... Um, we talked about, and this is, this is really going to piggyback off of what we talked about last week, and one of the features of what's been going on in my world is that I don't have the videos up for you to go back and recap, but my goal is to get those back up today, or uh, get those back up this week, so at some point you'll be able to follow up if you haven't yet. Um, but, but we looked last week at the story of a woman named Hannah. Do you remember Hannah? Some of us, yes, Hannah, yeah, some of us are named after her. Um, and Hannah was a woman who was married to kind of a jerk, um, and Hannah couldn't have any kids. And so she went to God, and this was a big deal for her, she was really heartbroken over it, and she took her grief to God, and we saw last week that God pours his grace into our deepest family griefs. We saw an instance where God comes to Hannah and answers her prayer. She goes, and she's doing the right thing. She's pouring out her grief to God, and she's trying to interact with the sorrow in her life within a spiritual community. So she's going to the temple in Jerusalem, um, where we might end up going into a church to deal with these kind of things. She's, at, she's doing what she can do in her time. And as she gets there, there's insult to injury in that the priest, she's so upset, the priest, Eli, thinks that she's drunk and accuses her of being an alcoholic, being drunk in the morning, and, and tells her to leave. And she's I'm not drunk, I'm just this upset that I, I'm barren, I don't have a child. And if God would answer my prayer, I would dedicate this child to the Lord. I would, I would give him back, give her back to service of God. And God hears her prayer, she conceives, and she dedicates her son. And we didn't talk about him too much, but her son's name is Samuel. Can you guys say Samuel? 
Samuel, that's an easy Bible name. Uh, it's one that we hear today pretty regularly. She dedicates her son Samuel to the Lord. She, leaves, she raises him until he's weaned, which could be three years old, could be five years old. They did breastfeeding a lot longer than we tend to today. And so when he's weaned, she takes him to Jerusalem and she leaves him. Not because he's not valuable, not because she doesn't want him, but because she's so grateful that God has answered her prayer that she's good to her word. She said she would dedicate her son if God would give him to the Lord, and he, he, she does. And so she leaves him with the priest who initially had accused her of being an alcoholic. It's interesting how the story of things turn, um, and it's going to be interesting. We'll see some more developments in the story of Samuel this morning. But we saw last week very clearly that God pours his grace into our deepest family griefs when we give him the space to do it. Oftentimes when we come to trouble, we, we, our first inclination is, I can handle this. Stand back. This is my problem. I will make sure it's resolved. But that doesn't leave any space for God to do his work. So if we give God space to interact with us, he will pour his grace into our griefs. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, it gets worse before it gets better. And it kind of only gets better a little bit. So if you will pick up with me, we're going to be in First Samuel again. We're going to be in First Samuel, and we're going to pick up in chapter 2 in verse 12. If you're using one of the blue Bibles that we've got in the room here, it's on page 284. Um, but you can navigate there on your app or however it is that you uh, prefer to do that. And as I see that you're getting there, I'm just going to invite you to pause together with me and pray. <laughs> and ask our Lord Jesus to be present here with us, although he promises that he is. And to ask him to give us what we need just for today. Ooh. So let's pray together uh, the disciples' prayer. Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptations, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. First Samuel chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 12. Remember, Eli is the high priest of Israel. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. 
For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And Samuel, Hannah's son, was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli, the priest, would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. I'm going to pause this there, and I read more than maybe I intended to read, but, and there's a lot of things in here that, that we're going to unpack. But the gist of it is, Eli, the priest, has sons, and the Bible says those dudes are worthless. And Hannah has brought her son Samuel to the Lord, and she is, you know, making clothes for him. It's really cute, and she brings him clothes once a year when she gets to see him. She comes back into Jerusalem and, and gives him clothes, and, and Eli blesses her husband and says, may Hannah have more children, and she does. She not only has three more sons, but she also has two daughters, and Samuel is growing in the presence of the Lord. So Samuel's doing really, really good, but Eli's sons are worthless. Now, how many of you, when you read, the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling? Who got outraged when they, when they read that this morning? All right, nobody. Okay, so you guys aren't Jews. That's okay. <clears throat> but for a Jewish person, um, as they went through, like, I don't know if you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year. That goes okay. The genealogies in, gen in Genesis are kind of difficult, but, and the story in Exodus is pretty cool until they start like, talking about how to make the tabernacle. That seems kind of boring. And then you get to Leviticus and just completely fall off because Leviticus is all about how to kill stuff and make sure that God's happy. It's, it's the process by which the people were given uh, to worship God, the way that sacrifices were supposed to go. And all throughout the book of Leviticus, as you read it, whenever you give an offering to the Lord... The means of cooking is roasting. The means of cooking is roasting. It's never boiling. And so from the get-go, we have a reminder. If we were reading with, with Jewish eyes, we have a reminder that this is the period of the judges where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. They have the law of the Lord revealed to them, and they just ignore it and do whatever it is that they feel like they want to do to such the degree that it is common practice in this day for them to boil the sacrifices, which is not the way you're supposed to do sacrifices. You're supposed to roast them on open fire. All right? There's no pots involved. It's just supposed to be an offering given. And not only was it, was it time, or not only was it a time where they were doing the things wrong and nobody really seemed to care that much, but then the priests were sticking forks in and taking out um, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Whatever comes off first is going to the priest instead of to God, because God's really, really clear. He says, there's some offerings that you give, and they are burnt offerings. The whole totality of it is useless to you. You're going to burn it so that it doesn't taste good, and, and I'm going to take the whole of it. Those are korban. Those are, those, are, those are sacrifices holy and totally dedicated to God. But then... God's uh, economy for the priesthood was that as they helped the people to offer their sacrifices, they also would get to participate in the worship, and by their participation and by their assistance, they got a paycheck. But their paycheck wasn't cash money, their paycheck was dinner. 
So, somebody would come and they would bring a peace offering to God. They would be thankful that God had provided for them. And the, and the priest would get a portion of the bread and the meat. And they would get to eat. And everybody that was in the priest's family would be able to eat. Like this, I don't know, this seems super foreign. Like I can see you guys are kind of glazing over. But there is a genius to the economy of how God made this work. Because the priests were not allowed to go out and do the normal labor. They didn't really go and grow things because somebody had to be there and take care of the tabernacle. Um, it's kind of like mobile church. We're blessed to have a building. There are many church bodies that are not blessed with a permanent location that they get to be in every week. And so when they go to have a worship gathering, they have to set it up. And even I've got some brothers in Canada who, are, who do a mobile church, and, and that component of their ministry has actually greatly affected the work that they're able to do because the place that they usually meet in is a school. And when the schools are closed because of coronavirus in Canada, the church can't meet. It's just not an option. They don't have a place to go. So, this, so the tabernacle was a similar thing where it was a mobile unit. It was a mobile tent that they had to be super careful how to take care of it. They had to have teams that would set up and tear down, and everywhere they moved, they, they would have to do this. And they had to keep things clean. I don't know if, if you've ever moved anything, but whenever you move a piece of furniture, it's all that dirt underneath it. Like, where does that come from? It's just been sitting there. <clears throat> and so there were people that had to take care of the tabernacle. It was a full-time job. They didn't have time to harvest. They didn't have time to grow their own food. And so as they served the Lord and they served the people of God in facilitating this conversation, they also got to enjoy in the offerings that were brought to God. So I just say all that to say, Eli's sons take that wicked awesome principle of an economy that allows for God's people to worship God and for that to provide for the people that are helping to facilitate the connection. They take that and, and, and obliterate it. They abuse it. They say, yes, that this economy, this economy is the way that, by which I make my living, and so I need to milk this for all it's worth. The fat portions of the offering were supposed to go to God. They go to God, and they go to God first. And they had started boiling things so that they could get the fat portions for themselves. And they got what, as much as they possibly could. And even, it reads, even if somebody say, okay, you can take whatever you need to take off of this offering, you can take, I know you're priests, you guys have this, this right, this provision to take care of it, but, but don't take the fat portions first. Like, I, I've, I've read the law, like, I know that you're supposed to give the fat portions to God first, so, so take the fat portions, burn those, and offer them to God, and then you can eat whatever you want. Like, I don't care, I won't even have any of myself. And they say, no, if you don't let us do this, we will take it by force. It's a corrupt time. <laughs> you're, coming, you're coming to God and you're saying, God, I have this offering I want to give. And these guys are like, yeah, but you're not going to give it the way God told you to. And you're like, oh, well, at least let me give God his section. And they're like, no, 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 no. If you don't do it the way that I want you to, I'm just going to take it. I'm going to beat you up. I got all these armed guards. These people that were, that were set aside for the care of the tabernacle become bouncers. And, and the, the, the temple of God becomes a place of bullying. Are you disgusted yet? I know I've been through a lot of like, stuff that's way, way, way different, but it's like, ugh, these guys are gross. And that's the force of this passage. 
Like when, when, when the writer wrote this down, he wanted you to feel yucky about these dudes, Eli's sons. And Samuel is there in that environment. And he doesn't, like, it's not, he's probably learning how to read. He, he may have access to the scrolls of the law, and he's starting to become familiar with them. But this is the environment he grows up in. It just leads me to ask, for us to consider, what are our marks of spiritual maturity? Like, for serious. Just because somebody has the finances to have a building, does that mean that that's a church? And just because somebody calls themselves a pastor, does that mean that they are one? I, like, do the same scrutiny to me. I expect for you to examine my life, like, and I expect for you to examine the lives of the people who say that they are in spiritual leadership. Like, we need to know that if you say that you're in spiritual authority and yet your behavior is not only inconsistent with Scripture, but contrary to the explicit commands of Scripture, then maybe you're not who you say you are. You might have the title of priest or the title of servant of the priest, but you're not doing the Lord's work. You're just serving yourself. And I could, <laughs> it would be dangerous for me to throw out names, although I could. And if you want to talk about it, we can. Um, but I'm not going to do that here. That's not what this pulpit is for. But just know that there are people who will claim spiritual authority that don't, shouldn't have it. They should be living lives consistent with Scripture. They should be teaching consistent with Scripture. And, and pure doctrine <laughs> leads to a life that looks like Jesus. If we believe the right things about God, then we will live a life that looks like Jesus did. He was the Word of God, perfectly expressed. And so if, if we have somehow come up with some kind of doctrine that leads us to live a life that's contrary to the way that Jesus did things, then maybe we should think about how we're thinking about things. A, a disciple of Jesus is marked by love for others. For God first, and wanting to do things consistent with the way that he said to do it. For other people in the spiritual community, like, this isn't just abuse. This is abuse of people that you have explicit care of. This is the spiritual family that these people are abusing and taking advantage of. Those should be the people that we love first. And then for the people that are unspiritual, people that are just human brothers and sisters, whether they're part of our spiritual community or not. And Jesus also has said, and we've looked at it recently, that you, you'll know my disciples because they forsake the comforts of the world. They renounce the benefits. They don't look for opportunities to exploit people to make sure they have more than they need. So what are our marks for spiritual maturity? And will we recognize leaders when they don't have them? That's kind of icky, but it leads us to our big idea. And it's, and it's one that I don't think we're super comfortable with naturally. So if you'll be patient with me as we go through, I hope that we'll see this together more clearly. But God's great grace calls sin, sin. 
and invites us to abandon it. God's great grace calls sin what it is. Sin is sin. And then, not just tells us what's wrong, but invites us to abandon it. There's, I'm, I'm going to try real hard not to get onto a rabbit trail here, because we've got more things to work through. But there's, a, there's, there's an idea in the culture at large, and I think there's something in our hearts that does this too, that says, if you tell me that I'm wrong about something, then you must not love me. If, if, you, if, you, if you confront me on an issue, then you're not being loving. But it's God's great grace that calls sin, sin. If, we, if God didn't tell us that it was sin, we probably wouldn't know. And if we didn't know that it was sin and we didn't know that it was going to be harmful not only to us but to the family and not only to the family but to the community that we're in, then maybe we'd keep doing it and maybe things would be worse than they already are. It's God's grace that calls sin, sin. And it's grace that invites us to leave it alone. And there's a cost implied that if the sons of Eli are to do according to what God has commanded, they're going to make less money. They're not going to eat as well. That's only because they've become accustomed to a system that is corrupted. God's great grace calls sin what it is and invites us to abandon it. Let's look at some more family drama because I know you need that in your life. 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 22. Now Eli was very old. Read, tired. And he kept hearing all that his sons were doing in all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear from the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If anyone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they, the sons, would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and also with man. So Eli catches word of what's going on. And he goes to his sons and says, look, like I'm hearing about the way that you have perverted a lot of these offering things. And not only that, you've, you've taken the women who are there to serve the temple and you have made them to serve your own corrupt and base pleasures. This was a common practice in in the nations around them to have temple prostitutes and cult prostitutes, but not in Israel. That was not how they were supposed to worship the one true God. In fact, they were were supposed to be completely separated from the way that the the Canaanites did things. And here we, we see that it's not only that they're doing them, but everybody knows. It's not like, well, hey, I hear somebody said over there that they saw something and it was kind of sketchy and, you know, maybe you, like, I don't know, like, I've heard a thing. And really, when people say people are saying, usually what they mean is I'm thinking it and I don't want to take responsibility for the thing I'm thinking. But Eli's saying, look, everybody's telling me this. They're not, they're not, this isn't rumors and gossip. This is facts being reported to me, not just by a couple of people, but by everybody. You guys, you guys are in the wrong. 
You're taking advantage of the people. You're taking advantage of women in particular. And this thing is not good. If you sin against a person, then, then, then God is going to be there to mediate for you. But if you're sinning against God in his temple, who will mediate for you? Oy. And as they do, the boys are just like, yeah, dad, whatever. You do you, I'll do me. It's fine. They ignore him. So Eli goes and talks to him, which is a great first step. But Eli is the high priest. He's the one who's invested with the authority and the care of taking care of the temple. Actually, this is really interesting. Part of what the priests were supposed to do was to keep, like, uh, corrupt animals or animals that were considered unclean to keep them from outside, from going into the tent. Uh, the priest's job was to take snakes and keep them away from going into the tent. And so the priest is invested with the authority to remove things from the temple complex. The people are coming and, and trying to worship God and being prevented by the priest's helpers, his sons, from actually being able to worship God. But they don't, have the, they don't have the authority to remove him. This isn't a congregational thing. But Eli sees the corruption that's going on, and he's the one with the power to do something about it. And all he says, hey, you guys cut it out. That's not nice. And they're like, shut up, Dad. What are you going to do, old man? You're old. You're tired. You can't fight me on this. And odds are he's probably eating pretty good because of it, too. He's the one with the responsibility to handle this, and he doesn't. Teenagers, um, there's going to be times where your parents are going to draw the line, and you're going to be real mad. They're the ones that God has put in your life to do it for you. And if they don't, things get worse. I, I wish I could tell you that, that if your parents would just let you do whatever you'd want to do, that your life would be perfect. Um, but I was a teenager once too. And if my parents hadn't stepped in and, and drawn some lines and said, this is not, you're not going to do this. Um, I could have done some long-term damage thinking that it was only going to affect me. But now that I have some perspective on things, I, I understand that I could have affected a lot of other people. I've been with Jesse from the time that I was 13 years old. We dated all through high school. And my parents insisted on not letting us be alone, and that was really frustrating. But now that I have the perspective that I have and realize how, you know, I, beyond the mechanics of how it works, how children come into the world, I realize that my decisions don't just affect me. They don't just affect my parents. They don't just affect our family. They affect a community at large. So teenagers, like, there's some give and take. We're all learning here. But know that God's put them there for a reason. Even if they don't do it perfectly, it's his great grace that calls sin, sin. And parents, if we don't do it, if we don't 
call sin, sin. We live in a culture that's going to give people a blank check to ruin their lives. And Eli might say the right things, but he doesn't take the right actions to enforce what is true and good, although painful. Verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. And this is going to be a history lesson. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to those of the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from, whom the, from the people of Israel. Why then... Do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So I do this a lot, especially when we start a new sermon series. I tend to go back to the beginning in Genesis and like start to walk us through where are we in history. Um, I do that because God does that oftentimes. He, he, turns, he sends a person, and we don't know who this person's name is, probably for his own protection, but he sends a dude to Eli and says, Eli, I got some questions for you. Didn't God raise up the priestly family from Aaron? Didn't he entrust you with this spiritual responsibility? And Aaron had two sons. Well, he had four sons. Uh, we won't talk about what happened to the first two. They were not good. Um, but the second two were Eleazar and Ithamar. And Eli is a descendant of Ithamar. And he says, look, like, didn't, I, didn't God choose to give you the priesthood? Aren't you descended from the family? Like, this is your inheritance that you got from your father's 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 father. Isn't this something that God has entrusted to you in spite of yourself? Like, why then do you, why do you, this is, oh, ugh. Verse 29, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves in the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? Do you hear, parents, there's a weird dynamic here. Eli's not the one doing the wrong. Eli, Eli's not the one who is, is extorting the people and sleeping with the girls. But by his inaction, he has incurred the guilt upon himself. By not removing his sons and giving place to the honor of the offerings of Israel to the Lord their God, he has incurred the guilt upon himself. Why then do you honor your sons above me? I don't want to hurt their feelings. I really, like, they got so much on their plate, I don't want to... <laughs> Who do we honor above God? Um, <laughs> maybe not verbally, because I think, especially if you're sitting in church or you're watching a live stream or something like that, you're like, oh, I'm churchy enough to know. I don't honor anybody above God. Like, we wouldn't say that we honor people above God, but oftentimes... The things that we do, the things that we allow, the things that we don't stand up for show that we honor somebody or something over God. Who do we honor above God? It's not just what we are saying. It's not just that we know the right answers. It's that we do the right things. 
But then Jesus would take it even a step further and say, it's not just that you do the right things, but you do the right things from the right heart. Is there something in your heart that you honor above God? A little less conversation and a little more action, please. God's great grace calls sin what it is and invites us to abandon it. Verse 30. Therefore the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will, be, there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with an envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men." And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be, given, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who, will, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house that he will go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Period. That's where the chapter ends. The next chapter starts with a completely different thing. Like, God gets the last word in this story. And it's a word of, of judgment. Don't you want to know how Eli heard this? Don't you want to hear, like, how he interacted with the nameless guy who showed up to tell him this message? Like... <laughs> The questions I have for God when we get to heaven are more like, tell me more about this. What happened here? Can I be a fly on the wall for this? But that's not the focus of the text. The text is on what God has said. He promises desolation to Eli's house. And this is the great reversal that Hannah sang about at the beginning of the chapter. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. The Lord makes the poor and makes the rich. Makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy up from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. Eli's living large. He's probably eating well because of his son's corruption. And now the word comes to him, you're going to be begging for food. I'm going to destroy your household. I'm going to, I'm going to weaken your household. Even as the nation gets stronger, your family is going to get worse and worse. You're going to see blessings poured out on the nation, but they're never going to trickle down to you. And then on top of that, I'm going to kill almost everybody in your family, but I'm going to leave one guy, and I'm going to leave one guy for the purpose of crying over everything that has been lost. God, you are so harsh. Why so mean? 
Look, I've given you warning after warning. I've made it very clear what I expect from you. I've given you spiritual responsibility over the people. And not only do you neglect the responsibility, but you are abusing the responsibility and you are taking advantage of people. This is sin and sin hurts. And I will not let you forever continue in sin and continue to hurt people. There will be a time of judgment, but that's not loving. God can't, you can't tell me what to, like that, that's not, that's inconsistent. I thought God is love. He is love and he loves you so much he'll stop you from sinning and he'll put an end to sin forever. But if you align yourself with that, then there's nothing left to be saved of you. It's God's great, God's great grace calls sin what it is and invites us to abandon it. I, I kind of love this in, in a sick kind of way. In, in not, not this whole concept, but these verses in particular. I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out of me, out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. He said, look, I, I made a promise. I said that your father's house is going to go in and out before me forever. <clears throat> it's kind of like, I don't know if you've had recent experience with this. It's kind of like being on a road trip with your siblings. And, and your siblings are like, they're like this. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. And God's like, look, if you want to play that game, I can play that game. If you want to say, like, God, I can bank on your promises because you've promised that you're going to give salvation to those who, t who, who trust you for it, but I'm going to continue to do the things I want to do. I'm not touching it. I'm not touching Like, you said you have to save me. You have to save me. You have to save me. He says, I can make my word true and write you out of it. If you're going to esteem me lightly, then I've got nothing for you. But those who honor me will be blessed. So the question is, will we honor God before he reveals the urgency of life and death? Will we honor God before he reveals the urgency of life and death? Because here's the fact of the matter. We just have talked about it in our previous series. Death comes for each of us. Life is short. If we're going to live with the end in mind, we have to know that we are going to die. We're either going to die or Jesus is going to come back. And, 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 and that's a different set of circumstances to navigate. <clears throat> but we can be lulled into like the normalcy of like, well, I got up this morning and I got up yesterday and I got up the day before that. And so I'll probably get up tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Like I'll probably just keep going the way it always has gone for as long as I can remember. And life isn't perfect. And life, like, there are things in my life that aren't good. And, like, God says that they're sin, but, like, I dealt with it yesterday, or I, or I went with it yesterday, and I went with it the day before. And so I'll probably go with it tomorrow and go with it tomorrow, and it'll probably be all okay. And we live with the normalcy of sin. But the testimony of Scripture is that sin is the corruption of what is good. It should be foreign to our creation, and yet we live in such a fallen world that we begin to think that oh, it's normal. Nobody's perfect. And that's true. Nobody's perfect, but that's not the way it was meant to be. And if that's not the way it's meant to be, then we need to be reminded of the way that it is supposed to be, that God is life and that sin is death. And we can, look in, we can sit in church and be like, yeah, that makes perfect sense, but that's because I'm not talking about the sin that you like a lot, specifically. And we each have one. Mine tends to be laziness and sloth and putting things off until next week. 
That doesn't seem very dangerous. In fact, for me to confess that publicly, you guys are like, that's the worst you got? Come on. But God gives life and sin is death. And if God says it's sin, it's sin. And if God says it's sin, it's death. And if I continue to just deal with it and play with it like nothing's ever going to happen, there's a problem. Sin is bad for us no matter how we feel about it. And it's God's grace that calls sin what it is and invites us to abandon it. So try harder. So, so tighten up your bootstraps and avoid sin. What do you want me to do, Michael? Even here, Jesus sticks his toe into the story. God says, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and mind. Samuel is a faithful priest. And he's even described in similar ways that Jesus is described. There's, there's language that echoes here. We're pointing to him. And we read in Hebrews that he is the great high priest that doesn't just offer the fat of bulls and lambs, but lays his own life down as a perfect and complete sacrifice and picks it up again so that he can advocate on our behalf. If we're stuck entertaining sin, let's turn and bring it to Jesus. And when Jesus calls it what it is, we say, yeah, I agree. This, this is sin, this is wrong, this will kill me. I turn it over to you. It's God's great grace that calls sin what it is and invites us to abandon it. Would you pray together with me? Almighty God, um, <laughs> there's times where your, your grace makes us uncomfortable. It's usually such a nice word. Pretty safe in general. But Lord, we're easily deceived. We're easily distracted. Um, and we often neglect the things that we already know. Particularly if we're familiar with your word. So would you, by your spirit, give us a hunger to know you, to be familiar with you, and to be intimate with you? And would you guide us as you do your work of removing the things that you have paid for, ultimately with your body, your sacrifice on our behalf? Would you guide us in loving one another well? Which may involve having difficult conversations and may involve taking difficult actions. But God, may we do so in a way that reflects your son Jesus 
his spirit, his words, and his life. And we need you for it. There's some days where we think we can do it by ourselves, but there's days like today where we just know we need you for it. Would you help us to walk with you in this? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.